Today's reading is Luke chapter 19, verse 45, to chapter 20, verse 8. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gives you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Thank you, Ben. Shall I pray for us? Our Heavenly Father, please would you open your word to us and open us to your word. And please would you transform the former through the latter for your glory. Amen. Uh, The first time I ever saw uh, Her Late Majesty the Queen in the flesh uh, was here, actually, in 2007 at the state uh, opening of Parliament. Um, Some of you will have uh, been to that, I'm sure. I was sat up on the balcony opposite the throne, so had a great view. And after what seemed like a very long wait, um, there were trumpets and uh, everyone stood. And then in she swept, flanked by Uh, Prince Philip and sat on her throne and did her speech. The second time was um, a few years after that, up in Sheffield. Uh, uh, The crowds gathered, everyone was very excited. Um, Up uh, drew a a, a glass-roofed car and a smartly dressed man opened the door and out stepped Her Majesty, I remember it well, dressed in red, matching hat, lovely black gloves, and she waved to the crowd and the crowd politely cheered and she started doing her thing, walking along the crowd, shaking hands, thanking everyone for all that they were doing. I'm sure that that sort of scene must have been played out countless times through her reign. It's just the sort of behaviour that you expect from a queen and the sort of behaviour you expect from her subjects. And so I suppose it might be the sort of thing that we would have expected to see when King Jesus arrived at his temple, the national cathedral of Israel, as it were. Smiles, red carpets, curtsies, and handshakes. But King Jesus makes a very different entrance and receives a very divided response. The reason that I'm so fascinated with uh, these verses that Mims has just uh, read for us, and thank you for that, is because they lay bare the reason why Jesus received such a divided response. And that's worth us seeing because the same reason works out today and always has. And it's not just a division that is kind of out there in society at large, but it's one that finds expression in every human heart, including yours and mine. 
Uh, To see this, uh, take a look at the entrance that Jesus made in chapter 19, verse 45, if you've got it there on the sheet in front of you. Jesus entered the temple courts and he began to drive out those who were selling, driving them out. He doesn't ask them politely to kind of make their way towards the exit. He is kicking them out. We read in the other Gospels that he was turning over the money-changing tables and forcing people to leave. He was angry. But this wasn't a blind rage. It was an indignation about the way that people were abusing the temple. That's why he says in verse 46, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple had become corrupt. The place of prayer had become a place to peddle a prophet. So he drove out those exchanging uh, money with the foreign visitors and those selling animals for sacrifice. It must have been a chaotic scene. People running around, sheep running and bleating, coins clattering to the ground. And after a few minutes of this, as the last seller scampered out through the gate, and quiet began to descend again on the temple courtyard. Jesus stands up to speak. And verse 47, it says, every day he was teaching at the temple. Now this was nothing short of a temple takeover by Jesus. He had assumed the authority to drive out the sellers, and he had assumed the authority to teach the people. He was taking over the temple from those who were supposed to be in charge. And you can imagine how they would have felt about that. Except you don't have to imagine, because it's there in verse 47. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders among the people were trying to kill him. Now, it says kill him. Actually, a better translation of that would be ruin or destroy. They're trying to bring Jesus down. And you'd think with all the big leaders, with all their power, well, they wouldn't find that too hard, just dealing with one man, surely. And yet, verse 48, they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. The crowd were transfixed by Jesus. The temple leaders want to take him down, but they can't for fear that the crowd will turn on them. And it must have driven them nuts. There they are watching a temple coup d'etat unfold in front of them, and they're powerless to stop it. See, we have this great contrast. Jesus comes to the temple, and some people see him as a threat to silence, others as good news to hang on to. So the next couple of chapters describes a sustained campaign by the religious leaders to bring Jesus down. Not by physical force, but by a barrage of hostile questions. This is question time for Jesus, as it were. Uh, When I worked here, Claire mentioned this earlier, I was a parliamentary researcher, 07, 08. And uh, when I worked here, um, the route to my office... Uh, took me past the, the door into the public gallery of the House of Commons. And so, over time, I, I got a bit friendly with the, the doorkeepers. Um, and um, I'm not getting anyone in trouble saying this, but they used to kind of let me just kind of sneak in on PMQs and just stand by the wall and 
watch what was going on, as I often did, and it, it was fun. Now, there are two very particular type of questions that you get at PMQs, aren't there? Uh, there are the friendly ones planted by the government. You know, the, would my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, agree with me that he's a really jolly good fellow and everyone should vote for him? Well, thank you so much. I happen to agree with you. you know, those kind of questions that are clearly planted. But then there are the other sort, aren't there, that are hostile questions. Those are very carefully engineered, probably over many hours, to undermine and discredit and to take the other down. I guess there will be some here who have been on the receiving end of those kind of questions. And that's what Jesus gets here. But he handles it masterfully. Uh, this is the first question that he gets in verse 2 of chapter 20. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Now it's actually quite a good question to ask because Jesus didn't have the backing of any of the religious authorities of the day. But don't be fooled into thinking that this is a legitimate inquiry because they already have the information that they need to answer that question as Jesus is about to point out in a few moments. No, you see, with every passing day they can see their power slipping away to Jesus and they would not stand for it. They had to stop Jesus. That's what this is about. It's about preserving power. And so how would Jesus reply? Well, verse 3, he replied, I will also ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? And with that question, the tables are dramatically turned. But it wasn't as though Jesus was dodging the question. You see, the answer to Jesus' question would have given them the answer to theirs. Jesus is basically saying, was John the Baptist a prophet from God? Because if he was, well, you'll have to accept his teaching, won't you? Which includes that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. In which case, well, you've got the answer to your question, haven't you? Who gave you this authority? Well, John the Baptist says that God did. Do you want to disagree with him in front of this crowd who all believe him to have been a prophet? Now they're the ones on the back foot, aren't they? And so, verse 5, they discussed it among themselves. This is like the moment in Dragon's Den when the people seeking an investment, you know, go over to the wall at the back and they're kind of furiously, urgently whispering between each other, trying to thrash out their response. That's the scene, but we can hear what they're saying. Verse 5, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. Now just notice what they don't say to each other. They don't kind of take counsel and go, you know, he might just have a point, mightn't he? You know, maybe he actually does have the authority, to come in, it maybe really is who he's claiming to be. They don't say that because, sadly, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in its consequences. If we say one thing, we'll look foolish. If we do the other, we'll be lynched. No concern about truth, just preserving their power. Do you see that? And so how do they respond? Well, 
they dodge the question. Textbook, right? I'm sure no one here has ever done that. But verse 7, we don't know. Now look, many people's response to Christianity is guided not so much by whether or not it's true as by its perceived impact on their lives. Surely, surely, every person should give serious consideration to who Jesus really was. I was talking with a headmaster just last week about why it's probably quite a good idea to teach children in schools about Jesus. Why? This guy never wrote a book. He never led an army. And yet there's a very strong case, I would say a decisive case to be made, that he is the most influential human being who has ever lived. Surely that takes a second look. He wasn't born into privilege. And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, continuing to speak of him. Surely that deserves another look. A consideration that maybe, just maybe, lets us entertain the possibility that Jesus is the person who he claimed to be. Namely, God, in his world, in the flesh. Surely that deserves a fair hearing. But more often than not, the crucial question is, how would being a Christian change my lifestyle? You see the difference? One concerned with truth, the other with its implications. More often than we'd like to admit, what we accept as true is influenced by what we think we want to be true. If a a judge is um, taking part in a trial, and they realise that they have, say, a financial interest in the outcome of the case. Well, they have to step back, they have to recuse themselves and ask for another judge to oversee that case because they can't be impartial. But when it comes to considering whether or not Jesus is the king he claims to be, every one of us has an interest in the outcome because it will change our lives. And yet none of us can recuse ourselves from the case. Each one of us has an interest, we're not impartial, but each one of us has to consider him personally. And that's why one person has put it like this. If we're sceptical, well, we need to be sceptical of our scepticism. What is it that is most driving my conclusions about Jesus? Honestly. Uh, Back in the temple courtyard, John's baptism, where is it from? We don't know, replied the temple leaders. And it's an embarrassing reply for them. They've already rejected John the Baptist. Everyone knows it, but they're too afraid to admit it. They confidently marched over to Jesus, planning to put him on trial. But now that they're the ones in the dock, well, suddenly they're all meek and agnostic and we don't know. Of course, they do know, but they're refusing to say. And so Jesus says to them, verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If they won't follow the evidence they have been given, well, Jesus isn't going to give them more. Now, just for a moment, can I invite you to compare these religious leaders with Jesus? Jesus is one man, standing alone in a hostile place, defying the religious establishment, 
And every time he opens his mouth, he knows he's taking his life in his hands. And he knows that ultimately his words will lead to his death. In contrast, we have the temple leaders who don't speak the truth. Why? Because they're concerned for self-preservation. Who's the real leader? It's ironic that they're questioning Jesus' authority when theirs is in tatters. They're too cowardly to lead for fear of the people they're supposed to be leading. They're more interested in profit than in prayer, more interested in power than in the preaching of the good news. Their authority is shot compared with Jesus. I ask again, who is the real leader? Jesus is a man I can respect and follow. He is one who has won the loyalty and the love of countless people in every nation and generation. When you hear people trying to discredit Jesus in order to avoid his kingship, see how much better a leader he is than any other the world has ever known. Who would you rather follow? When Jesus comes as king to his temple, he receives a very divided response. Some see him as a threat to silence, others as good news to hang on to. And so can I ask you, whether or not you call yourself a Christian here, or or whether you're not even sure about that, can I ask you, how do you react to Jesus' claim to be your king? Do you see him as a threat to silence or as one to hold on to? If you are a Christian here, can I ask you, how far do you let him in? Do you limit his authority in your life? Do you welcome his rule over some things, maybe many things, but not my career, not my marriage, not my bank account, not my family, not my sex life, not my friendships? Not my grudges, not my free time, not my home, not those things, Jesus. This far, but no further. When he comes as king, do you see him as a threat to silence or good news to hang on to? The Christian message isn't merely true. It's gospel, which actually means good news. Jesus is good news for all people. But is that how you see him? A few years ago, I was uh, sitting in my parents' living room. I think I was reading at the time. Uh, They had an open fireplace. And um, suddenly I heard a kind of a rattling noise. And a a bird fell down the chimney, out of the fireplace, and onto the carpet in front of me. And it stood up, and we both looked at each other for a moment. I'm not sure who was more shocked. And then it went completely nuts. It started flying all over the room. And of course, it was covered in soot, so it was very effectively redecorating the lounge black. And I had to find a way to try and catch this bird. And obviously, I, I didn't have nets lying around the house. And so I, I went and um, I got a towel, and I thought, I'll try and use this as a net. And uh, so I kind of approached this, this bird. And every time I, I did, I could see on its face it going kind of, this is it, this is the end, I'm going to die and uh, then it would flap to another corner of the room and this went on for a few minutes until eventually I did manage to catch it and I went over to the patio door and whoosh, off it flew. 
Sometimes when we see Jesus coming close, we can think that he's a threat. When the truth is, he's come to set us free. Like the temple leaders, we can see him as a threat to silence, when in fact, he is good news, the best news to hang on to, the very best news you will ever hear. And maybe we see him as a threat because we think that it would affect some area of our lives, that we don't want it to if we were to follow him. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that every time I have allowed Jesus further in, every time I have trusted him with more of my life, I've discovered that he has not come to harm me, but to set me free. And that's what I believe he has come to do for you as well. When the angel announced at the very first Christmas the birth of this king, he said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. And friends, that is what Jesus always is. And so will you receive him as your king? Shall I pray for us? Our Heavenly Father, we are so foolish for seeing Jesus as a threat when he's come to save us and to set us free. Forgive us when we've done that, or even if we are doing that now. Help us to give him our love and our loyalty. And always to hold on to him, our good news and our King. For we ask it in his powerful name. Amen.